Lisa Wagner, and welcome to my podcast on karmic astrology. Astrology is an amazing tool for self-discovery. And one of the things I love about looking at the karmic history in a chart is that it not only gives us kind of insight, but it answers the question of why. Why did I come on? Why did I come in with that talent, that fear, or with that lesson? Why is this my purpose? Why did I agree to this particular karmic contract? Looking at a chart from a personality type of framework can be insightful, but it feels incomplete to me because it doesn't explain why I entered this life believing what I believe. So the karma helps to get a better understanding of ourselves through seeing our karmic history. And today I'm going to talk about one of the ways we begin to see this history. Before I begin, though, I need to strongly recommend that you use an equal house chart. I have a post on Instagram explaining why I use it and a, a one-minute video showing ex- showing you exactly how to cast an accurate one for free online. I use equal house not only because of its accuracy with placements, but because the system I use for reading lives requires it. When we eventually go deeper into the zones within houses, and looking at timing and geography of lives, that all requires equal house. In the meantime, your placements will be more accurate with equal house. The signs and aspects are independent of the house system you use, so there is some overlap, but I promise you that the deeper you go in understanding your equal house chart, the more compelling and enlightening your understanding will be. And I'm stressing this now because today's podcast relies heavily on house placements. So if you don't have an equal house chart yet, go get one, then come back and listen. You can contact me via Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Karmic Astrology on both or email Lisa at karmicastrology.com. And you can sign up for my free weekly email. It comes out on Sunday mornings via my website. Now let's get started. Okay, so today we are digging into your karma. And one of the ways to see your karma is to look at the signs of your planets and connect that to the house that it's in. Because the sign is old history and the house is the current life focus. So you're choosing that house to focus on exploring that energy. And so while the house is the current life focus, it sort of indirectly implies karma because it's like, why did you choose that house? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're also going to talk about natural rulerships. And I like putting them together because people tend to lump them together when they describe them. As if, you know, having the moon in Gemini or the third house is the same thing, and it's not. Understanding that Gemini is the natural ruler of the third house and seeing why that is can help you to understand both Gemini and the third house. So, you know, I get the validity of that as kind of a teaching tool, but to understand your placements, it gets confusing, you know, when you read those descriptions. And I often get asked questions where people are just super confused especially when they have a planet in a sign that's in a house that opposes the one it rules. So that um, Gemini placement in the ninth house or that Pisces placement in the sixth house. 
And I think they're confused because they feel like they're supposed to go in opposite directions at the same time, as if someone told them to go east and west at the same time, and they don't know which way to go, so they just end up sitting there, and they don't go anywhere because they don't know where to go. So we're going to go through the houses and talk about the natural rulerships and what that means, and also talk about how you look at the sign of the placement and the house and work together to begin building your stories about that piece. So one of the things that is just, you know, fascinating to me about astrology is the way everything just fits together. And, you know, your chart is this complete package and everything is reflected somewhere else in the chart. So if there's, you know, there's always multiple ways to interpret anything, but the way that is specific to you will get reflected somewhere else. So nothing is really in isolation. And one of the things that I think really kind of demonstrates that connectedness is this whole notion of natural rulerships. So we start with the first house. Mars rules Aries, and Aries is the natural ruler of the first house. And the reason why is because the first house is the zone of self. You know, your rising sign is how you present yourself to the world, and the first house is really how you gain self-awareness. And it's what makes you aware of yourself. Your sun is identity. That's a different kind of energy. The first house is about how you gather awareness. And the reason why Mars is the primary energy there, why Mars and Aries rules that, is that when you're human, your body is the primary input, you know, for self-awareness, you know, to be aware of where I am in this time and space. It's literally where is my body in this time and space. So Mars is most at home in the first house. Now, Mars expresses itself beautifully in other houses, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But we're talking about, when we talk about natural rulers, it's what most naturally expresses in that house. And that martial energy is most easily expressed in that house. Aries naturally rules the first house because Aries is ruled by Mars. And the thing about Aries is that it is, it's not only, I mean, it's definitely initiating energy. You know, it's the, it's the spark that lights the fire. The thing about Aries though, is if you have any placements in Aries, if you have any planets in Aries, that shows lifetimes where you felt like you had to go it alone, where there's a solitary aspect to that lifetime. Now, whether you were literally alone, like, I mean, it could be, it could be indicative of like survival kinds of things. It also could be where you just felt like you had to be alone. Like, you know, maybe you didn't have the support I mean, this is where, you know, it can come in many different forms. So I'm only going to be able to give like a few examples as we kind of go through all of this. But it may be where you felt, you know, you, you were surrounded by people, whether it's, you know, family, what you were doing, community, but you felt sort of isolated in that pocket, like you couldn't really rely on anybody else. There's very much uh, a thing about Aries that is very survival oriented. I do it myself. I take care of it myself. I mean, people that have a lot of Aries energy are people that have an incredible level of self-reliance to them. And so that's the karmic history that is accompanying Aries. And that most 
easily and naturally expresses itself in the first house because the first house is how we learn about ourselves. And with Aries there, it means we learn about ourselves through our own experience because Aries is all about having its own experience. I mean, one of the things I love about people with strong Aries is that, you know, they're willing to give people a chance. It doesn't matter what they've heard about them because they want their own experience. They learn through gathering their own experience. Now, the tricky thing with Aries energy is that it tends to want to have its own experience. And so it's not always able or willing to learn from, hey, what somebody else did, you know, um, they're not, they, it's like, no, no, I got I got to do it for myself. You know, so they, they really, they dive into experience because that's how they learn. So when you look at what the first house is, you look at what Mars is, you look at what Aries is, you see why that kind of naturally fits together. Now, if you have an Aries placement that's in another house, then what that shows is that that person is taking this history of having to do it on their own, be on their own, go it alone, experience it for themselves. And they're trying now to learn how to adapt and connect to that energy in another way. So that Aries placement in the fourth house would say, you know what, I, I, I want to try and, and experience this energy through family. Or in the sixth house, I want to experience it through service. Or in the eighth house, I want to try and have more intimate connections. So it's the sign shows what you've been doing with the energy. And the house says, here's what I want to start doing with that energy. So just like, you know, Mars, where it's that I want to give it to me, it's my ambition, it's my drive. It may feel really at home in the first house because this is, you know, me, myself. But if you have Mars in another house, it just says that other that other area of your life is an area that's going to really, you know, kind of fire you up, that, you know, really get you going. This is where you you have passion, you have drive, you have desire. You want, to, you want to get moving. You want to do things that excites you. So, you know, Aries doesn't have to be on the first house and Mars doesn't have to be in the first house for it to work in your chart. Most people don't have their pieces in the houses that they naturally rule, nor should we, because this life is about learning. It also means, though, if you have that, like if you have Aries placements in the first house, then it means that there's a part of you that wants that's trying to simplify life. Like people that have Aries rising, um, you know, there, there are different ways to look at it, but one of the ways is which they came into this life really needing to simplify, like really trying to just get clear on where they're coming from. Now, what's interesting is if they have Aries rising, but then many of their placements are into the next sign, meaning they may have, you know, a placement in the first house, but it's actually in Taurus. It's not in Aries. And, you know, so it's not in the sign that is on the cusp of that house. So like for an Aries rising, then they would naturally have Taurus on the second house, but maybe they have a Gemini placement in there. So when people have, you know, a lot of placements that are in the sign that isn't ruling that, that also kind of shows you patterns like, you know, because you're less aware of that part of yourself when it's, in a house that's being ruled by a different sign. So, you know, there are ways you can kind of just step back and look at the chart as a whole and look at these big patterns. And one of those patterns is, 
You know, am I trying to simplify like that Aries rising? Conversely, having Libra rising where everything is opposite the other, that person comes in tending to just look at life in an overly complicated way. They tend to overcomplicate everything. Libra risings, you know, people think it's because they can't make a decision and it's not really, it's not so much that. It's not about decision making. It's just that they they tend to want to layer everything with so many complications that they just, they increase their their input and what they're looking at so much. Now they've just made the menu. If you've ever gone into a restaurant and the menu is just so long that it just takes you forever to go through it and figure out what you want. And so that Libra rising where everything Every house has its opposite sign ruling it is a level of, of kind of overcomplication. So looking at this relationship between signs and houses, there are different levels to it. And that's you know just yet another reason why the equal house chart just works so beautifully. So to go back to that first house, when you have placements there, it says you really want to experience that energy in a very personal, physical, visceral way. And whatever the sign is, is going to show you the old history of that. So like if you have, let's say you have Cancer Mars in the first house. And let's say you have Gemini rising, Cancer Mars in the first house. So your history is, you know, I put my energy into family. My ambitions were were often guided by what my family needed for me or what I needed to do for my family. And in this life, I need to learn how to put some of that energy in myself. Now, if the cancer is rising, then that person's going to have a, a lot more clarity about that. If it's Gemini rising, then they may it, that may not be so obvious to them. And they may have a tendency to kind of get sucked back into family. And it takes them a little bit longer as they go through their life to really kind of care about their own ambitions and what they want to do. Whereas if it's cancer rising and that cancer Mars in the first house, they're going to, they're going to see it quicker and they're going to get to that quicker. The having it be Gemini rising with that Mars cancer there, it's going to take them maybe a little bit longer to see that. But regardless, their history is, you know, I work my ass off for my family. And in this life, I need to put some of that energy into myself so do you see how that sign, the old history, shows why that person chose the first house? And it doesn't mean that if you have a thousand lives, every single life was about family. What it means is, is that this chart is a picture of your lives and the ones that are most relevant to the lessons that you're going to learn. So it says, okay... Um, Mars in Cancer in the first house. You know, I have I have some lives where I was really um, focused on what my family needed for me. My actions were really driven to provide for my family, to be there for my family. And you know what? One of the things I want to work on in this life is how to find my own ambition, how to go after what really inspires me in terms of like wants me to get out there and do things. I want to throw my energy and time into. And so my Mars is going to be in the first house so that I'm really going to experience that. It also may be that, you know, um, even just just physically, like I want to pay more attention to my own physical needs. I want to really take care of my body instead of being focused on 
making sure everybody else is fed and taking care of everybody's needs, I really want to get super into what my body needs. So that first house shows what you're focusing on and the cancer, the sign shows the history that you're kind of working with and the planet shows the kind of energy that we're talking about. So let's go on to the second house. Venus rules Taurus and Venus is about, you know, human love and beauty. And so it differs from Neptune and Venus is, is the human expression because the personal planets, Mercury, Venus, and Mars are all very human based. So we've got Venus ruling Taurus and Taurus is the natural ruler of the second house. The second house is about stuff. It's about your resources. It's about seeing that how you can be resourceful. It's about your worth and how you, how you discover and learn your worth. So the first house is, you know, how do I gain self-awareness? How do I learn about myself? How do I gain that awareness as I interact with the world? And then the second house is how do I see my value? And Taurus is the natural ruler of that second house. And so there's a, you know, there is a connection between all three of those about value. But the difference is, is that, again, the, the, the sign is the style that you used in the past. So people that have Taurus placements, no matter where they show up in their chart, that those are placements where there was an emphasis or focus on earthly needs, earthly pleasures. So that could show, um, it, it could show a lifetime where the person didn't have much, you know, where they were kind of scrambling, you know, in order to have their physical needs met. It could show a lifetime just the opposite, where they were very comfortable, where all their needs were easily met. It could show, you know, a lifetime that was where they were really focused on like gathering resources. So it could be like a farming type of situation or mining or something where you were harvesting resources, harvesting, um, you know, even making resources, you know, and a lot of people that have um, second house placements are often um, shopkeepers, by the way. So it's interesting. So the, anyway, the, the Taurus can be about, it, it typically has something to do with resources, but then you want to look at the house that it's in to see what are you trying to do with it now? So that if you had a Taurus placement in the second house, then, you know, that's a natural expression. So that person is saying, you know, my history is um, focusing on resources, focusing on how I can bring value into my life. And I'm going to focus that energy here in the second house because I need to take it farther. So there's, there's some reason why they're doing it in terms of wanting to get clarity, wanting to build on that. I mean, you know, you have to look at all the other stuff in the chart and the aspects and everything. But the point is there's a natural, you know, connection there. Now, if that Taurus placement is in a different house, let's say it's in the sixth house. Well, then maybe that person has some real health issues that they need to deal with through that energy because, you know, the sixth house is about service and it's about healing and it's about how we um, tend to our daily routines and how we set up the structure of our life so that it serves us, so that it suits us. And so that Taurus placement in the in the sixth house could indicate the need to have some kind of structure around how they're of service. It, it could be something like working in a, uh, using that energy in a healing profession. It could be about having some 
really attention paid to how they manage their health, what kind of foods that they eat. You know, so you want to look at, again, the Taurus is the, the history, and then the house is this is where you're focusing it. And the, then the, the planet is the type of energy. So, for example, Mars in Taurus in the sixth house is definitely going to be tapping in, you know, to the healing um, and the physical, you know, component of that. Whereas, you know, if it was Venus, it may lean more into the service part of it, you know. How do I, you know, how do I um, uh, take care of, how, how do I serve, you know, the people that I care about and the, um, you know, the values that I have? How do I pay service to that, but in such a way that I still get my own needs met? So, you know, the planet energy is going to influence what you're focusing on in that house. But the key is it's really about the sign as old history and house as current life focus. So in the third house, we have Mercury rules Gemini. Gemini is the natural ruler of that third house. And the third house is information. It's how we gather information, use information, and it's our voice. It's about finding our voice. What do we have to say? And speaking up for ourselves. And so, you know, Mercury is our rational mind. It's how we process information. So wherever Mercury shows up in your chart, that's an area of life that you think it makes sense to invest yourself in. It's smart to put some energy there. And it makes sense that Mercury would be the natural rule of the third house because the third house is about communication. And Mercury is how we communicate via language. But Mercury can operate beautifully anywhere else. And so can Gemini. But Gemini is that Touch lightly and move on. Gather this information, gather that information. And that works beautifully in that third house. But let's say you have a Gemini placement somewhere else. Let's say you have a Gemini placement in the eighth house. Well, then that person came in saying, you know, my old history is to be very light about this, to be very casual about this, to really be, you know, just want to get this information and communicate that information. But in this life, I want to get more intimate with this energy. I want to go deeper. I want to go below the surface. And then, you know, depending upon the piece, let's say it's Venus in Gemini in the eighth house. You know, that's a person who probably would really value the transformational part and may very well be involved in some kind of therapy or way in which they help people transform they help people go below the surface. They use their communication skills. Remember, the sign is the old history. So it's experience and skills that you're tapping into, whether you're u- utilizing those skills or whether those experiences that you're healing. But it's saying, I'm going to use those skills in order to affect transformation, in order to connect with people in vulnerable places. And I, and maybe there's some healing that needs to happen, meaning, you know, I didn't, Maybe I didn't take something as seriously as I needed to in the past. And in this life, you know, I'm not going to make that mistake again. And I'm going to go deep. I'm going to dig deep. And I am going to be more vulnerable. I am going to be more willing to connect intimately with people. And I'm going to be more willing to look at what we create together versus what I do on my own. So the sign, the old history, the house, the current life focus, the planet, the energy. 
So then the fourth house, we've got the moon rules cancer, its home, its family, its mother nature. And so when you have, so cancer is kind of right at home there because cancer is the most controlling sign of the zodiac. Cancer is the matriarch and the matriarch wants to control everything because they want to make sure that everyone's needs are met. They want to make sure that everyone has what they need. And, and so the matriarch can't, doesn't, doesn't like to tolerate, has no tolerance really for chaos. You know, they want things to be managed. They want resources to be managed. And so that is tied in with that stewardship of the earth and mother earth and allowing, you know, nature to sort of have what it needs. So it naturally all fits together, but you can have cancer placements in any other house. And, you know, we used as an example in the beginning, a cancer placement in the first house, needing to get a more personal expression of that energy. So what if you had cancer in the 10th house? You know, that's the opposite of the fourth house. So that's one of those examples that we were talking about earlier. And so what that would mean is, okay, my focus with this energy, let's say it's, um, let's say it's the moon. Let's say you have a cancer moon in the 10th house. So your whole temperament is steeped in this cancer experience where you say, you know, my whole temperament is about my family. It's about my emotions. It's about controlling my environment. But in this life, I'm going to put it in the 10th house. And the 10th house is the area of life where we learn what our individual contribution is. Because the fourth house is like your own little world. It's family, but it's also like, it's like the people that you have close to you, whether it's family that you're born into or that you create or that you sort of curate. Um, but it's like your own little nest, your own little world. And it's, it's living there. And then the 10th house is being out in the world and making your contribution in the world. It isn't about chasing fame. The 10th house is not about acquiring fame. And a lot of people want to look at it that way. And it's not. It's about being your authentic self in the world. It's about honoring your individual contribution to the world. And the reason why the 10th house has this, this thing of perfectionism with it is because there's this, this pressure that people um, naturally put on themselves. If I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to be seen then I need to do it in such a way that I'm a good example, that other people could copy me and they're going to be better for it. So if I'm going to put myself out there, the soul says, then you need to make sure that you truly are being your authentic self. Because ultimately it isn't about people copying this, this dress that you wear or you know the style that you have or this belief that you have, is that ultimately what they're gravitating towards is your natural is your authenticity that you are truly expressing yourself in the world. So let's say of this cancer moon now in the 10th house. So what you're challenging yourself to say is that you know my history is just to be focused on my own little world, you know, to take care of my family, to tend to my emotional needs, but in this life I need to put myself out there in in the sense that I need to go beyond what is safe. I need to go beyond this, my little zone of where I'm comfortable. And I need to be willing to express myself wholly as this is who I am. This is how I feel. And to be willing to do it 
without being attached to the responses that you get, without being attached to do people like me or not, without being attached to how do they accept me, but it's really about this is who I am. This is authentically who I am. And people that have the moon in the 10th house often even have like experience where they have been seen. And then part of what really drove them into those cancer experiences is wanting to like retreat back, you know, into this, you know, my own little world. And so they often have this sense of trepidation, like, oh, but if I put myself out there, you know, am I doing this all over again? That's where that, you know, we're kind of getting into this sort of opposite things combining. And so it can feel a little bit scary because then they put all this pressure on themselves. Well, if I'm really going to go for it this time, then I have got to be super perfect all the time. And what they're learning is that, no, you don't. You don't. You just have to be yourself. You just have to be yourself. It isn't about being perfect. It's about just going into the world, doing your thing, being who you are, and not needing to be in control of everything because that cancer moon wants to control everything. But when you, which you can do more of that in your home, you can control being in your home. What you can't control is what happens when you're out in the world and people react to you. And so you're sort of learning, okay, how to balance that, how to stay true to myself, but, and, but to be myself and then to let go of the reactions of others. Because that cancer wants to be very emotional, wants to take everything very personally. But the 10th house says you can't. It's like if you post something on social media and it's public. You can't control that some troll's going to come along and post something that annoys you or hurts or hurts you. But you have a choice. You can ban and delete or you can engage with them and argue. You can feel like crap all day because of something they said to you. Or you can say, oh, you know, well, that's sad that that person is so unhappy with themselves that they're doing that. Oh, well, and go on. So, you know, it's about having to be true to yourself, be true to what, how you feel, be true to how you live your life, but be present out in the world. So I'm hoping that you're starting to see this, that the sign is the history, and then the house is where you're currently focusing. Now, sun and, and Leo and the fifth house. So the fifth house is creative self-expression. It's, it's joy, it's children, it's taking risks. And Leo is ruled by the sun. The sun is the energy of identity. And so Leo is about um, how you creatively, it's the style of, of creative expression, but it's also about the greater good. It's about, it's about how you shine in your life, but it's more than just for you. Like, like the sun shines on the whole earth. It doesn't just shine on, you know, one or two people. So Leo has this strong desire to not only um, be this creative self-expression type of energy, but, but it needs to be for a purpose. It needs to be for more than just them because there's a lot of really strong generosity that goes along with Leo. So the, this all kind of fits beautifully in the fifth house because you have, that's the kind of the zone of creativity. And then you've got Leo there. The sun is the creative expression. You know, the sun is your identity. So you've got all of that naturally there, but 
it doesn't mean that the sun has to be there to be easily expressed. You can have your sun somewhere else and your that's where your identity is. So if your sun is in the third house, you're identifying through your ability to communicate. Or if your sun is in the ninth house, you're identifying through your ability to learn and to teach. Or if your sun is in the sixth house, you're identifying through service. So the sun doesn't have to be in the fifth house. But if it is in the fifth house, then it says your identity is really focused in on how can I experience my creativity? How do I create a life that is joyful for me? How do I create a life that is that is that is playfully creative and yet I still, you know, fulfill all of my responsibilities? And then with Leo, while Leo naturally expresses itself in the fifth house, Leo can show up anywhere. And so when you have a Leo placement, it means that, that person is tapping into a history where they were really focused on um, you know, the greater good, where they had some need to fulfill a purpose or to live with purpose, or they maybe were, you know, tended to be dramatic. A lot of Leo placements have a, a history to, you know, some kind of showmanship or because, you know, part the thing with the theater, the reason why that goes with the fifth house, not only because it's creative, but also it's a way of creatively reimagining yourself. You know, it's a way of imagining I could be this or I could be that because it's play acting. So that's why all that kind of goes together. And so, you know, a, a Leo fifth house can be someone who, um, excuse me, a, a Leo placement can be someone who is tapping into a history of showmanship, of, of putting themselves on stage so, stage, so to speak, whether that is an actual theater or just in some way putting themselves in a situation where they're being watched or where they're being entertaining, where they're being creative, where they're striving towards the greater good, you know, all of that Leo stuff. But it doesn't have to be in the fifth house. You can have a Leo placement anywhere. And then, and then you're going to say, I'm bringing that energy into this area of life because I need to learn, I need to expand how I've experienced this. So let's say you have a Leo placement in the ninth house. And the ninth house is about travel. It's about higher education. It's about knowledge. It's about, um, it's religion. It's the legal system. It's all the ways in which we kind of experience, you know, um, uh, ways in which we need life to be fair and just. So a Leo placement in the ninth house is going to have this greater good history but now they're looking at the area of life where they need to learn and grow and where it's more about justice. It's not about keeping things even. Like, you know, the difference between, um, it's not a, like Libra has kind of a scorekeeping type of vibe where it's like, let's, let's have a balance. Justice is more about, it's not about balance. It's about, is it is it fair and just? Is it the right outcome? And so, so a Leo placement in the ninth house is going to be someone who says, I come from a history of wanting to have purpose. I, I come from a history of wanting to, you know, provide for the people around me. 
now in the ninth house, I need to look at doing what's right. And what's right, like ultimately right, may not be what I had, what I have been spending my time on. So for example, it could be, there can be a tendency to want to be very generous and to really want to take care of the people that are around them and then find themselves in a situation where they kind of have to do some tough love because, you know, giving a person a helping hand at this particular point in time may just enable them. And the ninth house is pushing them to say, you know what, you got to up this in a way where you're doing what is, what's more the right thing. I mean, negatively, the ninth house can get super righteous. So you can get people with heavy ninth house that are, you know, really um, incredibly ethical and really seek to serve a higher good all the time. And then you can also get people that are just really judgmental and, you know, um, really self-righteous. So I like, though, focusing on the um, higher uh, higher expression of that. So that Leo person is going to say, okay, I need to take my, my desire to want to, you know, maybe be a little dramatic and, you know, take care of those around me and be generous. And I need to look at what's right. And sometimes what's right is for me to step aside and let someone else have the spotlight. Or sometimes what's right is for me to say no. So you're going to look at that piece, that energy and say, okay, how does that need to get expressed in this ninth house? And where am I coming from with it? I really hope you guys are getting this. And I'm going to keep going here. Um, I'm going to try and speed it up though, because this is taking a while. Um, Or maybe I'll break this up into multiple parts. So moving on to the sixth house. And once again, we have Mercury ruling the sixth house because it rules Virgo, which is the natural ruler. But it's different than the third house because Gemini is an airy version of Mercury and Virgo is an earthy version of Mercury. So with Gemini, there's a heavier version on being verbal and the language piece of it. And with Virgo, there's a heavier version on the analysis of it. Because Virgo is an earth sign, and all the earth signs in their own way are involved in the order of nature. And so with Taurus, it's about getting your physical needs met. With Capricorn, it's about the human structures. With Virgo, it's about like the systems in nature, like the seasons, the natural seasons in nature. That's a Virgo thing. It's the systems of nature. That's very Virgo. Virgo is very system-oriented. And so the, so the sixth house is the area of life where you tend to the rhythms of your life, the rituals of your life. It's the health of your life, the, your, own, your, own, your own health rhythms, you know, how much you need to sleep, how often you need to eat. So there's a health piece of it. And there's also a service piece of it. It's about, you know, how do you, what part of the system are you? How do you serve the system? How do you serve others? And so Virgo placements, um, while they're at home in the sixth house, because that's a sign of rules, they can, again, they can show up at anywhere. So no matter where you have Virgo, let's say you have it in the 12th house. Let's do another one of those opposites. So the twelfth house is your sanctuary and where you dream, and it's um, it's the stories you t- 
tell yourself, that scare yourself. It's your fears, but it's also where you can just let your imagination loose. And it's the space between worlds. You know, it's it's the space where you meditate. It's the space where you daydream. It's the space where you connect to. It's the bridge beyond this life. And so with Virgo there, that would be that, you know, you've come into this life saying, okay, I've really analyzed this. I've really thought about this energy. And now I need to broaden it. I need to let my imagination really, really go. I need to give it, I need to give it space to really imagine what this can be. And I need to not be so focused on getting it right and making it perfect. That's what my history is. But I need to have more compassion. I need to be willing to, you know, be less constrained by perfection so that there are more options. And I need to stop telling myself these stories that scare me. I need to stop creating, you know, um, stories where if I'm not perfect, this negative thing will happen. It will fall apart. I won't be good enough. You know, it's really, because the 12th house is sort of where you scare yourself. So whatever the sign is that's in the 12th house kind of gives you insight as to maybe how you're doing that. And with a Virgo placement there, it can be that you're holding yourself to a level of perfection or you're nitpicking yourself too much. Whether, you know, like, whereas if it was an Aries placement, in the 12th house, you know, that's somebody who's really, as, as we mentioned, you know, they're used to doing things on their own. They're used to having to do things on their own. So in the 12th house, they may be challenging self to imagine that they can be, that there is help available to them, you know, to imagine beyond what they've had to do to have more compassion for themselves and to allow themselves to say, you know, I'm I'm worth helping. And maybe even though I've had to always do this on my own, maybe there's another way. Maybe I don't have to do it alone. So again, the sign is the history with the energy. And then the house says, here's where I'm trying to take that history and see it in another way or use those skills in another way or try and play with this energy in another way. Learn a new angle of relating to this energy. Okay, seventh house. So Venus also rules Libra. It rules the second house and Taurus, and it also rules seventh house and Venus. And again, we have the difference between air and earth. Taurus is an earth sign. So, you know, Taurus is the earthy version of Venus. So it's more about creature comforts. It's more about physical pleasure. It's, it's sensual. Whereas the, the, the Libra version, the area version is more about balance and harmony and diplomacy. So you have, they're both based in beauty. They're both, there's an artistic flair, but what's interesting is if you have the, the Libra piece is more about the eye for beauty, curating the beauty. It's the designer. Whereas the Taurus is more about digging in, getting your hands dirty, sculpting the clay, painting the picture. Um, it's interesting this, if you have a Libra placement in the second house, I see that a lot with really, really talented artists because they not only have the, they have the Libra in history, which is that real eye for beauty, but it's in the second house, which is much more tactile, much more about resources. So 
Um, in fact, I see, I, I can think off the top of my head, more than one crystal, crystal seller that has a Libra placement in the second house. Um, because it's really about, you know, the eye for the pretty things. And I'm going to have a shop. I'm going to be a resource for the pretty things. So see how that's tying together. You've got the Libra history of, of beauty and having the eye for beauty in the second house of, of physical resources. So wherever you have Libra, even though it's naturally expressed in the seventh house, because the seventh house is the zone of our one-on-one relationships where we partner with people, whether it's romantic, whether it's a business partner, whether it's a best friend, whether it's a person we're sitting next to on a bus. It's how we connect with people, where we connect with people one-on-one. So Libra naturally rules that because placements in Libra show a history where you felt compelled to always think of the other person. So there is there is typically a people-pleasing vibe that goes with a Libra placement. There's also a need for fairness as in scorekeeping because of the balance piece. So if you get people with strong Libra, some of those people can be very tit for tat. You know, it's like, I did, I did this, now it's your turn. I did this twice, now you have to do it twice. So it can be, so you can get different kinds of extremes. You can get people that are just people pleasing, that never think of themselves, that always think of other people. You can also get people that are very scorekeeping, that are like, no, I'm, I'm keeping track. And some of those types are only comfortable if, you know, they're a couple ahead. So, you know, if it gets even, they want you to come up with more because they're more comfortable having a little bit of a cushion there. So you get different versions of this. But the thing with all the Libra placements is that there was an emphasis on connecting one-on-one with other people about having balance, about having beauty, about having an, an aesthetic. Those were the those were the primary focus of the lifetimes that they're pulling together with that Libra energy. And then where they're putting it, it says, well, and this is how I need to explore it now. So I use the example of the second house. That's It's really common for people to, to have a shop with that, to want to you know, turn the, those qualities into a service or goods that they sell. Um, a Libra placement in the eighth house is someone who wants to get more intimate with those connections. A uh, person that has a Libra placement, let's say, in the fourth house, maybe they're, they now want to focus more on, on family and they want to focus more on their own little world and how they can really create a personal like like they're like they have a desire to have a really personal experience with their home um that is their style instead of always having to um live in a place that was someone else's style you know if you have a libra placement in the first house so let's go the opposite you know the first house is how you experience your self awareness seventh house is how you experience awareness through other people and then a Libra placement in the first house would be someone who says, my history is to always be a partner. And this time I need to learn to figure out who I am. I need to not always rely on other people to be there for me. I need to learn how to stand on my own two feet. And an Aries placement in the seventh house would be someone my history is to always go it alone. And this time I need to learn how to depend on other people, to allow other people in, to show up for other people. 
So again, it's the history and then the placement. So it says, this is what I've done in the past. Now this is what I need to do this time. Scorpio, Pluto, eighth house. Um, the natural ruler, right? Eighth house is vulnerability, victimization, transformation. That's right up Scorpio's alley. That Pluto is all about choice. So the natural rulership there, super obvious. They're all at home. But what happens when you have, and we've used some examples of having a placement there. So what happens when you have Scorpio or Pluto somewhere else? Well, Pluto is where you derive your power. It's your ability to perceive that you have a choice. Pluto is personal empowerment. And it is the ultimate in creation because it is your willingness to destroy. You know, in order to make something, you have to destroy something. So in order to make that ceramic vase, you have to destroy the lump of clay to turn it into something else. So there is a, and, and it's the ability to, and willingness to choose to be a co-creator of the universe in your life. A willingness to say, I don't have to have all the answers. I can connect with something greater than me to craft my life. So Pluto is all about power and choice. What if you have Pluto in the third house? You're learning how your words have impact. You're learning how to find your voice in a way that is powerful. Learning to speak up for yourself. What if you have Pluto in the 11th house? You're learning the power of connectedness with other people, the power of community, the power of being on a team, the power of being part of a group versus just just functioning on your own, the power of being part of a cause, the power of, of working towards something with other people towards a shared goal. So Pluto can be anywhere and it's going to be that choice and power. Scorpio can be anywhere and it's going to bring with it the energy of Scorpio, which is, which is problem solving, which is digging in and figuring out how, what's going on. It's the, it's solving the mystery. You know, that's why it's, it's all the occult stuff. It's all the sorcery kind of stuff because it's all about the secrecy and the mystery and wanting to figure all that out. There's a really strong problem solving piece to Scorpio that I think people miss because they focus on all of the, you know, the dark art, so to speak, and, and the mystery thing. But it's really because they want to figure out the answer. And that can show up anywhere. You know, Scorpio in the third house is somebody who, you know, is learning how to, they've got this history of being really deep, right? And now in the third house, it's saying, you know what? Sometimes you have to learn to just take things on at face value. You know, just take what someone said and not put some whole big backstory behind it right? Because the third house is more about information and sharing information than taking in and learning information. And Scorpio wants to create a whole big mystery about it or to create chaos. You know, there's very much a, um, I said, you know, cancer has no tolerance for chaos. Scorpio is all about the chaos because one of the ways they figure out what's wrong is they, is they blow everything up. You know, when, when someone is testing, a product, like some, regardless of what it is, you know, what the engineers are trying to figure out the stress points. So they do these different kinds of tests to it to see how they can break it so they can figure out what they need to fix and how they make it better. You know, they, car manufacturers, they crash cars to see how they crash so they figure out their weak points so they can build them and make them stronger. Scorpio is all about that kind of research and figuring things out. And so they've always got all this crap going on as a way to figure out, you know, what really needs my attention.
So Scorpio in the third house is like lighten up with it. You know, it doesn't always have to be some big mystery. Sometimes it is just what it is. It's just a piece of pie. The person just said hello. Like that's all the more that it is. Or let's say you have Scorpio in the sixth house. You know, that can be someone now who's combining their investigative skills, right? And looking below the surface and their sort of, you know, taste for alchemy, but they're expressing it in the in the arena of health and service. So that could be someone who does medical research. You see how that fits? Like the research comes from the Scorpio and then the medicine with the sixth house. So again, you're taking your history of what you've been doing, what you understand and what you know, and you're expressing it in this other area of life so that you can expand on what you know. Life is always about growth. It's about healing our wounds and growing and being more that we are. So you want to look at that placement and say what needs to be healed and what needs to grow. Ninth house, we have Sagittarius and we have Jupiter. And you know the ninth house, as I've said, is about travel and spiritual growth. Um, and so Jupiter is at home there, but Jupiter can be anywhere. You know, Jupiter in the 10th house, let's bump it over a house, that can be someone who really grows by their ability to tap into their authentic self. Like they learn, uh, they gain more confidence by showing up as themselves in the world. That act of showing up helps them to grow and helps them to feel more confident and to feel stronger. Whereas that Jupiter in the third house, you know, by communication, they really grow and they feel more confident and they feel more capable to be who they are. In the eighth house, you know, they, when they connect intimately with people, that's where they shine. So that energy can show up anywhere. The house shows where they're exploring it. And then the sign, Sagittarius, while it's naturally expressed in the ninth house, what if you have that Sagittarius piece in the first house? You know, Sagittarius rising is someone who is able to really project so much confidence. You know, I always joke and say they can they can get a job they're not qualified for just just off the interview because they're able to project the confidence. The thing is, though, they also don't know how to ask for help. And they feel like they're supposed to always be able to do everything. Uh, the woman I studied with called it Superwoman Rising. Because, you know, that Sag Rising feels like, and I have to be able to do it all. And with that, whatever that placement is that's in the first house, they're really learning, you know what, this is part, whatever that piece is in Sag, they're learning more about themselves through it, but they're also learning that it, they don't have to have it mastered. It's about their own growth. So let's say you have a, a Venus and Sagittarius in the first house. So that person really loves travel. They love growth. They love all that stuff. They have Sag rising. They're able to be super optimistic. But with that Venus in the first house, it says, but you really need to tend to what matters to you. That it isn't about just always going into any situation and then you know, taking care of whatever needs to be done. What matters to you? What do you value? What makes you feel loved? What makes you feel appreciated? And sometimes that means, you know, that you have to ask for help 
or that you have to say no or that you have to say that you can't do something because the only way you can grow is when you acknowledge that you don't know something. And that's kind of that other little flip side to Sagittarius, that it's great to have all that enthusiasm and confidence, but if you walk around thinking you know everything all the time, you're not learning very much. And so you have to also say, you have to be willing to not always be right. You know, the protection is, if I use my confidence and I lean into my confidence and I feel I'm always right, then I feel like I can take on the world and I can do whatever I need to do. But then you're not really fulfilling that other strong component of Sagittarius, and that is to grow and to learn. So you also have to be willing to say, I don't know. You have to be willing to say, you know, I made a mistake or I don't get it. And so looking at that Sag piece in the first house says, you have to have, it's, it's, it's great, yes, yes, you know, be out in the world, grow, show what you know, all that's wonderful. But now in this life, let's get really personal with it and focus on your own growth and what you need. Tenth uh, house, we've got Capricorn, we've got Saturn. And the tenth house is that um, being your authentic self in the world. And, you know, Capricorn is about mastery of our human existence. Saturn is our humanity. It rules time and space, you know. That's how we know we're human, like we're in this time and space. And Capricorn really is is um, the master of that. Like people that have really strong Capricorn energy at its finest, those are people that can just do anything. Like anything they set their mind to, they just know how to get it done. They know how to do it. And it's not always, you know, I think Capricorn gets a bad rap. You know, they want to say it's boring or mundane. And, you know, I I just kind of roll my eyes because I know so many creative types, so many successful artists that have strong Capricorn because they know how to get it done. Or people that have a passion project. It's not, you know, it's not something that they necessarily want to make money off of. But um, they know how to do a job that's very lucrative and get their needs met. And then they can pour their money into their, the greenhouse that they have. And, you know, because their, their passion is to cultivate um, roses, you know, to do cuttings and, to, you know, they want to create a whole new hybrid rose or, you know, whatever, their, um, whatever it is that they want to do, they know how to structure their life so that they can do it. So there's a lot to admire there. And the thing about the 10th house and being our being our authentic self, Capricorn naturally fits there because it's about structuring your life so that you can show up and be who you need to be and do what you need to do. That's that natural expression of Capricorn there. But if you have Capricorn anywhere else, it just means that that's an area of life where you're bringing you know, a history of practicality and knowing what needs to be done, but now you're, you're expanding on it in a different way. So that Capricorn in the fifth house is someone that says, it's great that you know how to get things done. It's great that you know how to manage your time. And now in this life, you're going to focus more on, on play and on joy. So it's like you get all your stuff done. So then you can have time to do what you need to do. You know, um, for any of you that have like maybe a regular work week during the week and then you like love when you can go into the weekend and you don't have to work 
and you're caught up on your chores. So you just get to play. You just have to have, you just get to have a couple days where you can have fun. Um, versus if you go into the weekend and you've got this whole to-do list that you feel burdened with, you think, God, you know, I have more time during the week when I'm working. So there is a value to managing your time. And so you're bringing this, this history of Capricorn that says, I know how to manage my, my earthly, um, structures. I know how to manage my life. The fifth house says, and you need to do it to allow yourself to be more creative and to have more joy and to play. And uh, if that Capricorn is in the sixth house, it could be because, you know, you want to take that experience and now say, okay, use that build on that so that you have a life that is really supportive of your health, so that you have a life where you can serve and still have your needs met. So it's using that Capricorn ability to get things done, but in a different area of life. And Aquarius, uh, 11th house, Uranus. You know, Aquarius is the ultimate team player. Aquarius is the iconic friend. Like it is the sign of friendship because Aquarius is about connection. And those are the friends that you can lose touch with. And when you get back in touch with them, they're right back there. And that's why the 11th house, you know, is about teamwork and it's about causes and collectives and, you know, living in communal living. It's about we all pitch in, we're all in it together. It takes a village and Aquarius just naturally rules that. And Uranus is that energy that knows uh, it's the connection between seemingly unconnected things. It's the higher octave of Mercury. So where Mercury is your mind, Uranus is that, aha, I get it. I put different pieces of information together and I figured out something. It's that moment of inspiration where you're like, I get it. So it's also spiritually that moment where you get that we are all connected. It doesn't matter how different or separate we seem, we are connected. So Aquarius and Uranus may naturally fit with the 11th house, but they can show up anywhere. And where Uranus is, it's where you're bringing your your history of individuality and in the style of where Uranus is. Now, Uranus moves really slowly, so it 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 you know it takes a long time to go through a sign. Um, so I focus less on the sign when I'm looking at a chart, and more on the aspects and the house that it's in. Certainly, you look at the sign as old history and style, but with the outer planets, it becomes um, a little bit less. It it alone is less informative than with the planets where it moves more quickly. So it's informative, but you really want to rely more heavily on the house. So what I mean by that is you want to ask yourself, why would this person choose this house placement for that piece? When we're looking at like Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, why did they pick that house? So when I mentioned Pluto, and I think I mentioned Pluto in the third house, and that was a, a person, you know, that sees their impact through finding their voice and that words matter. And so regardless of the sign that it's in, that's going to be a strong thing. Now, looking at the sign is going to give you some information about their history and it's going to help you to see even more like if it's a, if it's a Virgo, Pluto versus let's say it's a Leo Pluto or a Libra Pluto, you know, in that third house. 
So with the Libra, it's going to be, well, my history is that my power was, was in relationships. And in this life, I want my power to be in, in the, in what I know and what I'm able to share and how I'm able to speak up for myself and in the words that I say. And with the Virgo, it could be, well, my history is, you know, I focused on my ability to, my power was in the way that I analyzed. My power was in the way in which I served. And now I want to serve, but I want to do it through the words that I use. I want to do it through speaking up. So, you know, you're still going to look at that history with those outer planets, but you're going to lean really heavily on other things about that aspects that it forms, the house that it's in, the degree that it is and all that stuff. Um, so it's, it's, it's not as, um, just looking at the sign of those higher octave planets isn't as informative as looking at, um, the other details about it. And then we have the 12th house. We have Pisces and we have Neptune. And the 12th house is your sanctuary. It's your retreat. You know, it's where you kind of go to hide from the world. It's where you put things you don't want other people to see. It's more about privacy. You know, the 8th house is secrecy and the 12th house is privacy. Um, it's also where you scare yourself. It's the zone of self-undoing. You know, when you have placements there, you know, though you, and, and you know, in other lives, you've kind of, um, you know, you, you've let it sort of, you've pulled the rug out from underneath yourself and you've now created these stories where you've scared yourself. And so in this life, you know, you have a placement there because you're saying, I need to address this. This is how I've scared myself. So see, even regardless of the sign of the placement in the 12th house, there is an aspect of saying you put it there because you said, you know, I have to learn why I'm, why I'm scaring myself with this. Now, look at what the sign is. So let's say, you know, if it's in Virgo, I think we already talked about Virgo in the 12th. And one of those things is, you know, you create these stories of perfection that scare you. Um, let's say it's Libra in the 12th house. You know, you have scare stories about what it means, you know, when you partner with someone and maybe you lose yourself. Or maybe they take control of your life. Maybe you're afraid to partner with somebody because then they'll own you. You know, if there's Taurus in the 12th house, maybe you're afraid, you know, your needs won't be met. Um, so the 12th house is, it's visionary, it's expansive, it's imaginative, it's sanctuary, it's all this gorgeous stuff, but it's also where we feel like we have to withdraw because otherwise we will be undone. And looking at the energy that's there will help you to see what part of yourself you've put, you know, what part of yourself, you know, gets into that. And then again, the sign is that old history. So I hope that starts to get you thinking about sign is old history, house is current life focus. Why would you put the piece in that house given your old history? And of course, we haven't even talked about aspects. That's a whole other ball game. Um, we got to layer this in. There's so much, so much that I want to talk with you about, but I feel, I, I'm hoping that this piece will help you just by looking at the signs and the houses. And I can't emphasize enough, use an equal house chart. Not only is it more accurate for all this, but if you stick with me and we get deeper into the karmic stuff, you, you have to use an equal house chart 
because the, the zoning stuff and everything, it just, it can't be used with those other house systems. So I encourage you to give Equal House a try. Do let me know if this was helpful. I'm most active on Instagram. You can get me there. I'm at Karmic Astrology on Instagram. I also made sure my Twitter account still works. I'm also at Karmic Astrology there. So you can also shoot me a message. You know, let me know if you have questions from this podcast, uh, if it was helpful, not. Your feedback really makes a difference. You know, on Instagram, I ask questions often in the stories. You know, do you want this? Do you want that? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? I do quizzes because the feedback that I get helps me to decide what kind of content to share. So even if I don't respond to everything, I do take it in and it does inform, you know, the choices that I make. My website is at karmicastrology.com. My weekly email is free, the Cosmic Butterfly, and you can sign up for it. It shows up on Sunday mornings and that's all I use your email for. I don't spam you with anything else. I don't give it to anybody. I just use it to send that weekly email. I wish you a beautiful day. Mm -hmm.